China in a nutshell, a concise summary of the Middle Kingdom. China is the most populous country in the world and the second largest economy in the world by nominal GDP. It's the most successful country to ever call itself communist and is therefore poised to fundamentally challenge the certainty that we all grew up with, that liberal democracy is the best system. The 21st century is going to be China's century, unless something serious and seismic happens. Serious and seismic events do occur in China, whether at the political, social or environmental levels. And the governing party, the Chinese Communist Party or CCP, well, their overriding mission is to ensure that no events come along and threaten their power. China has grown and shrunk over its long history, been at times the biggest economy in the world and a regional hegemon, and at other times been kicked around by bigger players. But a common thread has run throughout the ups and downs, making China not just a country, but a civilization. Chinese people often know the traditional ruling dynasties by heart. Here's Andrea from Shanghai doing it on command. That list stretches back more than 4,000 years. 2,000 years gets us back to the short-lived Qin Dynasty, which was the first to unify China under a common leader. He was Qin Shi Huan, the one with the terracotta warriors in the huge mausoleum in Xi'an, intended to guide him safely to the underworld. But that's not the beginning. Prior to that was another couple of thousand years of ancient China, during which you had your Confucius and your Lao Tzu and your Sun Tzu, and the first Chinese writing system which modern Chinese characters come from. The very first Chinese dynasties emerged near the Yellow River and are shrouded in myth. Many have made the journey to China to discover the ways of one of the planet's great civilizations. the most famous probably being Marco Polo, who came during the Yuan dynasty. When I went to China, it wasn't as lofty and deliberate as that. After university, I went to Taiwan to teach English, not knowing what else to do in that post-Great Recession economy we were emerging into. The Taiwan experience, for all its gems, left much to be desired from a work perspective and friends and family were not particularly ready to believe that a better life could be found in China. Hang on, I hear you say, isn't Taiwan a part of China? Well, we'll get to that. After a few months teaching in Taiwan, a new recruit from South Africa wandered into the classroom, with the same optimistic eyes that I presumably had at the start of my stint. Optimistic, but not young eyes. This was no post-grad world seeker, but a man chasing a reboot. After a month, over a cheap Taiwan beer, he was telling me that his job and his new life in Taiwan was part of his punishment. I wasn't a good boy in South Africa, he told me, in his authentic, very accurate South African voice. He went on to tell me about drugs, women, and getting sacked from his job in computers. He thought that the Lord had sent him to the friendliest place in Far East Asia to teach well-behaved kids English for a reasonable salary. It's not the worst punishment that God could dish out, I suggested. We worked for Hess International Education Group, Taiwan's most monstrous corporate English teaching factory machine. It's a place for new teachers to start because the material is exhaustive and very little individual creativity is needed to get through a class. Acceptable qualifications include being a native English speaker, white skin a plus, sometimes a deal breaker, and a degree in anything. Any teacher can be inserted into any class at any level 
and with the right books, compare it through it with reasonable efficiency. That's the idea. The children learn by rote, with classwork directed towards perfect scores on the frequent tests. Mistakes are simply wrong, and incredibly long-winded sentences that English speakers would never normally use are memorised by little ten-year-old kids who have no idea what they're saying, like The man is talking to the vendor whose son is holding a saxophone. Now really, what ten-year-old needs to make such an observation? Apart from the heartless teaching, their unpaid hours, pointless meetings, high taxes, misleading promises on bonuses, a teaching certificate which was meaningless outside the company, and a contract which promises to fine you a hefty lump if you quit, which is legally ambiguous at best. Still, it's not the worst punishment that God could dish out. Despite the Taiwan experience leaving much to be desired, I was sure, or at least hopeful, that not all English teaching was doomed to be a misery-inducing rope factory, and I put nothing but blind faith into the unqualified conviction that an international school in Jiangsu province, China, would be better. It's a real school, I told myself with a running track and a flag-raising ceremony. A young woman named Xin picked me up at Shanghai Pudong Airport. My first taste of China was the exotic airport Burger King. Then into a minivan and off down five-lane highways below overcast skies containing various densities of smog to Changshu City. I slept all the way. It was the 2nd of September and I'd already missed one day of class. As we approached a large red building with flags and yellow buses parked outside, I moaned with anxiety. That place really looked like a school. I was so not up for it. I wanted to stay nestled into that car seat forever. Thankfully, they guided me straight to my apartment, specifically to the bed, where they duly left me and I flaked out. I'm not going to pretend that I was Mr. Teacher Man, itching to get going, despite what I'd said in the interview. For what it's worth, an interview for an ESL job in China goes something like this. When can you start? When I awoke, I realised that the apartment was quite nice. Nicer, in fact, than my flat in Taiwan or any of the crummy rooms I'd lived in in London. My fifth-floor suite had the full range. A double bed with mosquito net, a laundry room, washer and dryer, two air-conditioning units, bedroom and living room, a giant window with a view over the running track and football pitch, tennis courts, fields and canals stretching all the way to the horizon, a bouquet of flowers, a desk, and a sofa with a small chunk of the padding missing, a bathroom complete with toilet, sink and shower with three incredibly bright and hot lights overhead. A fridge, a water machine, a mechanically reproduced painting of flowers in three parts fixed to the west-facing wall. A wall-mounted flat-screen television boasting a variety of Chinese television stations that I'd never watch. And finally, a tiny kitchen with a double sink, double hob, a collection of cupboards and an extract fan. The only wall socket in the kitchen was placed helpfully next to the sink, where no appliances could stand, but where water, and hence electrocution, was more likely. And all this for the reasonable price of nothing. There was a knock at the door. It was Li, a faintly camped teacher of Chinese and German. Flag-raising ceremony and German classes. This just got better and better. It was so real compared to the training school in Taiwan. Li was here to help me find some dinner. My watch, phone and laptop all still thought we were in London, but according to Li, it was 7pm, so we went to the canteen. 
The school provides free breakfast, lunch, and dinner, he told me, seven days a week, except Friday night. Sounds good, I thought. It was closed. So we walked out the north gate, passing a guard on the way, across a small bridge and a very wide but completely empty road. Here was a bus stop. We waited 20 minutes and the bus came. Cost about 1 yuan, which is about 10 pence, for a single journey. Very good. We got off at the first stop, only a few hundred yards down the road. I've slinked over to fridges of a comparable distance. In my haze, I hadn't realised that we could have walked there and back and been snuggled up in bed already. Lee directed us to a small food court where he ordered me a bowl of rice, some vegetables and some cold meat. I sensed a certain amount of intrigue from the other diners, but I kept my head down. Lee sat patiently while I ate and took me home again. Again, we waited twenty minutes for the bus, for the shortest journey man has ever taken. I was impressed with the initial hospitality of my hosts. Okay, so the canteen hadn't stayed open for me. But the staff who'd been assigned to help me get to the school and get me fed had been very polite and friendly. I reflected that Lee probably had us wait so long for the bus because he assumed that the last thing I'd want to do was to take a stroll. I appreciated that kind of thoughtfulness, even though I hate public transport, and would have preferred to have walked from London to Changshu had I not already been late for the start of term. The next morning I was at my amicable best, wobbly with jet lag, but ready to smile my way through various boring but inevitable paperwork. I walked across the quiet campus, across the running track, past the gym and into the main building, which had inspirational words written proudly in Chinese and English on large pillars, Chinese roots, international perspective, leading charisma, plebeian awareness. Plebeian awareness? Besides this, a mission statement on the wall promising that this school, which I haven't named, would become the, quote, cradle of elites, unquote. Somewhere between cradling elites and being aware of plebs, I supposed, was my role, and I wondered which side of the scales would carry the most weight. I had been ordered to present myself in the International Department office at 8am, which I just about managed. It was Wednesday. I attempted to delay getting shuttled into class so abruptly, by suggesting that there might be some boring paperwork for me to do first. But the staff were pretty keen on getting me into that room. We left the office, went downstairs, through the library and across a four-tier bridge which connected the offices to the classrooms. The rooms were spread around a large rectangle with a garden of meditation situated in the centre. Every room had windows to a corridor which, while having a roof, was open to the elements from the side. Today was a sunny day, and the way the light crisscrossed between the tall red buildings, around the Big Ben-style clock tower, and down to the courtyards, was rather pleasant. I recalled yesterday's smoggy landing in Shanghai, and the numerous articles I'd read about Chinese pollution. In 2014, the Chinese city of Linfen held the number one spot on the ignoble list of the most polluted places on Earth, although it has dropped significantly in the years since then. That's partly explained by India's determination to pollute their air, but also the Chinese government's clean air policies. In 2015, a Chinese filmmaker called Chai Jing released a highly popular and controversial documentary called Under the Dome. Controversial, naturally, because it's critical of the Chinese government, but also because Chai arrestingly claims that pollution caused the tumour that killed her unborn child. 
the government switched from being initially supportive to banning the movie outright. For the last half century of China's unstoppable rise, smog has been a price worth paying. But the government is aware that the people expect cleaner air and less poisonous rivers, so they've set themselves the task of being the foremost world power taking on the fight for the environment. We'll have to see if they follow through. Perhaps Changshu is different, I thought. It's about 50 miles inland from Shanghai, in the Yangtze River Delta, an area sometimes known as the Golden Triangle in reference to the pace of economic development in the region. The Golden Triangle loosely sits between Shanghai, Nanjing, Hangzhou and Ningbo. Looking at the map, it takes something of an interpretive leap to see this area as a triangle, but the golden irregular quadrilateral doesn't really have the same ring to it. This golden triangle is but one of at least three golden triangles in China, and there are still more elsewhere. Historically, the humid climate, the abundance of water from the Yangtze, and the monsoon rains allowed the cultivation of tea, hemp, grain and cotton, a positive bounty when compared to much of China's arid soil. The Yangtze River Delta's fertility, combined with some hungry and sharp-witted Neolithic folk, meant that it was one of the first places to domesticate rice, perhaps 9,000 years ago. Huge watery resources are however not without their drawbacks, as 33,000 people in 1954, and 3 to 4,000 more in 1998, found out to their peril. Natural disasters are scattered throughout Chinese history, seemingly as numerous as its stiflingly vast population. The Yangtze River is the longest river in all of Asia, the third longest in the world. The locals call it Changjiang, the Long River, a name which typifies the literalism of the Chinese language. The Long River's floods are said to be worsening with industrialization, and now it hosts the biggest dam in the world. The Three Gorges Dam, completed in 2008, is intended to produce cleaner energy and control flooding by permanently flooding chosen cities, towns and villages. Thousands of them. When the people of Fengjie, upriver near Chongqing, face displacement because of the dam, Mr Chen Maoguo protested at the low compensation, earning himself three years in prison. The new Fengjie was rebuilt on higher ground, adopting the same name, like all the replacement settlements of its submerged ancestor. The story of Fengdu, another casualty town of the Three Gorges Dam, is darkly poetic. Almost 2,000 years ago, two officials got married on Ming Mountain and lived there, practicing Taoist teachings. Their names, Yin and Wang, spoken together in Chinese, sound like King of Hell. Dark stories circulated and this sinister mountainside eventually became Fengdu Ghost City, an earthly model of Diu the Chinese underworld. Evil gods were cast in stone performing cheeky, hellish deeds. Then the Three Gorges Dam was built, forcing the flooding and relocation of the county. The ghost city was severed from Fengdu County by the flood, and many of the gods of the underworld became hidden beneath the waters. Twenty-eight kids in a class is small by Chinese standards but 28 intrigued and frightened seven-year-olds appeared to me like an expanse as wide and impenetrable as the Red Sea. I had no books, but honestly today wasn't the day for books. It was an introductory day, 
and the Adam I was introducing was to be the awkward and tired version. He would stumble around the room, clumsily breaking the chalk every time he wrote on the chalkboard, remember no names, and make one girl cry. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, the other foreign teachers, a nice bunch of curious jet-setters, or a collection of reprobates who can't make it in their own country, you be the judge. <laughs>